We've got uh, two passages we're going to look at this morning. Um, we're going to read them back to back, though. Uh, one is Acts 19, starting in verse 23 uh, through verse 41. And then we're going to look at Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. Uh, and while you're turning there, let me do a quick plug. Uh, the, the new Bible study on Tuesday mornings started uh, this past week. Uh, we had a really good uh, crowd. We had a really good discussion. Uh, so uh, we looked together uh, at the passage. We literally had it printed off, double-spaced, uh, on normal copier paper, and just spent like 25 minutes reading through it, underlining things that struck us, circling things. And then we came together and really discussed uh, what was going on in this passage. Uh, it was really helpful for me uh, as I was thinking about this passage and preaching it, but uh, I think we had a really great conversation. Um, so please, uh, week to week, you can come or not come, depending on uh, your schedule. There's no commitment, but I uh, would love to have uh, folks there. Um, it was a fun time. Before I read this, let me also just note a little bit about where we are in the Bible before these passages happen. What we're looking at today is the story of the founding of the church in Ephesus. And we are looking in particular at two scenes from the early days of that church. But what's happened is the Apostle Paul has gone to the city of Ephesus, which is a city in Asia Minor, a major commercial hub actually in the, uh, the, the uh, region of Asia Minor, which would be modern day Turkey. And Paul went there and began preaching. And initially he was preaching in the synagogues and he had some conflict with the leaders of the synagogues. And so he ended up spending two years just preaching the gospel in other places around the city of Ephesus. And what we see in the beginning of Acts 19 is that the gospel went forth with power. People were being changed. People were turning from death unto life. They were repenting and putting their faith in Christ. And it even says that the word of the Lord was increasing mightily, that all the people of Asia had heard the gospel. It was moving forward powerfully. That's where our first story begins. Uh, so we're going to look at uh, Acts 19, uh, 21. Uh, we'll go through the end of the chapter, and then we'll jump down to Acts 20, verse 17. This is the word of God for us this morning. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." Jump down to verse 17 in chapter 20. Now from Miletus, the apostle Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions Await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not seize night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own to figure out what to believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word, and you've given us your spirit. And Lord, we pray now that you would be at work in us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would speak words of truth and correction and comfort to us. Lord, anchor us in your promises this morning. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 412 AD, Augustine of Hippo, a bishop of the church in North Africa, wrote what is arguably one of the most important books ever written in the Christian tradition. And that book is called The City of God. And Augustine wrote this book in response to what was going on in the world around him. You see, what had happened in the years prior to writing this book is Rome had fallen. It had been defeated, and this was unimaginable to the Christians of that time. And so they were confused, and they were scared, and they were nervous, and they were unsure of what they should do. And Augustine writes this book to help Christians understand what it means to follow Jesus in the world. What it means to not find their hope or find their way of living from the world itself, but instead to follow Jesus in a new way of living, a new kind of way of being human. And Augustine says, there are two cities. And this is a quote from that book. He says, these two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self the heavenly city, by the love of God. The earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. As we look at these two stories from the beginning in the early days of the church in Ephesus, I think we get a great picture picture of the difference between the city of man and the city of God. A city built on love of self and glory of self and a city built on love of God and the glory of God. 
So as we look and begin with this story in Acts 19, we are going to think what this teaches us about the city of man and what it would look like to be part of the city of man. Acts 19 shows us, and let me stop before I get too much farther into this, there is way too much in both of these things to talk exhaustively about either of them. So this is a Mach 2, 40,000 foot overview of Acts 19 and 20. I'll just stop there. There's going to be stuff that's probably interesting that we're not going to get to. Uh, But the city of man, I think we see it in the story of the riot that happens in Ephesus. And the city of man, uh, we see in that passage, is built on four different things. And the first one is the city of man is built on idols that take. Idols that take. And you see it throughout this story. You see it throughout the controversy that erupts. You see, Ephesus was built around the worship of this goddess Artemis. And Artemis was a goddess of fertility, a goddess of the hunt, sort of an agricultural deity, a goddess that would uh, be about abundance and and profitability and, and fruitfulness in marriage and home life. In fact, if you look at statues that we have of uh, Artemis that have survived from this time, Artemis is portrayed as a, as a woman with like a hundred breasts, um, a picture of abundance and fertility. And I mention that, uh, excessive detail, because uh, you see in verse 35, when the clerk goes to settle the argument, to settle the riot, he talks about the sacred stone that fell from the sky. A meteor had landed in Ephesus, and it looked like Artemis. It was lumpy, we'll say. Uh, That's why they were worshiping this rock as the goddess Artemis. Uh, And what was happening in Ephesus at this time is there would be annual festivals dedicated to the worship and devotion of Artemis. One of them was called Artemision. And it lasted a whole month in March and April of every year, during which all normal business would be suspended, and there would be athletic competitions, there would be music and theater and dancing and sacrifices. And the people of Ephesus believed that in the midst of this festival, the goddess Artemis was at work. And what she was at work doing was matchmaking people. And it was actually the parents that were doing the matchmaking. But at the end of this festival, all of these new couples and arranged marriages would do this grand procession through the town of Ephesus, arrive at the temple, and they would all offer sacrifices. This was a major money-making event for the town of Ephesus. In fact, from a statue in Ephesus in the ancient world, from the time that this passage was written, we found an inscription on a statue that says this. uh, In this way, talking about this festival, in this way, with the goddess honored more highly, our city will remain for all time more famous and more blessed. They believed that by worshiping this goddess in this way that Not only individuals would find profitability, but the city of Ephesus itself had fame and glory and honor and fruitfulness. Idols are really all about control. Idols are not really about love. Artemis doesn't care if you love her. Artemis wants you to appease her. 
That's how the worship of false gods always goes in the world. They ask for devotion. They ask you to sacrifice or to make offerings or to bring them something. And what idols promise is that if you keep up your end of the bargain, then I will give you stuff. Idols in the ancient world and idols today are the places that people look for ultimate meaning and purpose and security and comfort and enoughness. And that's what was going on in Ephesus. People were looking at this goddess as providing security and and comfort. And if they could just be devoted enough, then she would give them prosperity and, and fruitfulness. And friends, sometimes it's easy for us to read stories like this and to kind of laugh and think like how silly it is that they are worshiping this false god. But friends, we have to be honest about the fact that we too look to things other than God for ultimate meaning and purpose and security and comfort. We look to things other than God to feel like we are enough. We look to things like money for comfort and security. We look to our families to give us meaning and to make, make our reputations great, to make us look good. We look to our performance at work or at school. We, we look at all of these things hoping that we will feel like we are enough, that we will be significant, that we have dignity and, and goodness in us. Friends, we all have idols in our hearts that are much like Artemis. And looking at how the Ephesians treated Artemis helps us see in starker relief our own hearts. Because the second thing we see about the city of man is that because it is built on idols that take, it is profoundly built on insecurity. Life under idols is always insecure. And you see it in verse 26. I actually love what Demetrius says because it's really kind of funny if you think about it. He says, you remember, he's, he's proclaiming how uh, the business is going to be damaged uh, if people come to Christ. And he says, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That's kind of a funny sentence, isn't it? Gods made with hands are not gods. What Demetrius is getting at here is that idols really only have power insofar as there is an illusion of worshiping them. And friends, if if you are worshiping an idol, when things don't go your way, most people think, well, that just means I wasn't devoted enough. I need to have more and more and greater and greater displays of devotion. And the gospel is a threat to that way of life. That's why there is a riot in Ephesus. Paul is simply pointing out the insecurity of Artemis. Artemis is a rock that fell from the sky. People are running around saying, I love you, meteor. I mean, that's really what's going on here. They are worshiping a meteorite. And they are hoping, and they are praying, and they are by excessive and more and more displays of devotion that Artemis is going to bless them and give them things. And the gospel is a threat to the worship of false gods. This Artemis, the Ephesians think, is great, but apparently she is not 
very strong. Artemis is insecure. You see, friends, idols not only take from us. Uh, they, they take, they demand more and more from us. But the problem with idols and the reason that worship of idols always leads to insecurity is that idols take more and more, but they deliver less and less. I've quoted this before and I'll quote it again, but the great author David Foster Wallace, when he was speaking in 2005 at Kenyon College, notes that everyone worships. Everyone has something that they are worshiping. And if you are worshiping something other than God, that thing will ultimately eat you alive. He says if you worship money, you're never going to have enough. If you worship beauty, you are going to die a thousand deaths before age finally takes you. If you worship feeling powerful, you're going to feel like you are constantly being undercut and you're going to be paranoid. You are going to feel small and insignificant. And if you worship being seen as intelligent, you're going to spend your life fearful that you're going to be found out as a fraud. Idols take more and more, but they deliver less and less. They are insecure. Life under idols is inherently insecure. One author said one time, every idol ultimately asks for a human sacrifice. We give everything to the idol and it gives nothing. The city of man is built on idols that take. Because of that, it's also built on insecurity. The third thing we see in Acts 19 is that the city of man is built on self-interest. You see it in verses 25 and 27. This self-interest is um, individual, but it's also civic. It's also a group sense of self-interest. Uh, Demetrius is concerned with the bottom line. That's the thing that gets the riot going. He's worried that if too many people turn towards Jesus, then his cottage industry of making silver shrines of Artemis is not going to do so well. And he's right. Uh, he's He's right. But he's angry about this, and he is motivated by his own self-interest, his own financial benefit. He also makes the same argument that if, if enough people turn to Jesus and away from worship of Artemis, then Ephesus itself will fall into disrepute. Because if people aren't coming from all over the place to worship at this great temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, if people stop doing that, the city becomes insignificant. It was a major source of civic pride. And that's why, again, I think it's helpful to remember Augustine's quote, the city of man is formed by love of self. You see, again, idols are not really something that we love. Idols are about control because they're really justified by our love of self. We seek to uh, appease an idol so that we get what we want. You see Demetrius doing that. You see the entire city of Ephesus caught up in that self-interest. That takes us to the fourth thing we see the city of man built on in Acts 19, and that's confusion. You see the confusion throughout the story of this riot. This riot breaks out because Demetrius gets people worked up enough that their self-interest is not going to be met any longer if people turn to Christ. But it says that the city was consumed with confusion. You see it in verse 29. 
And I love what verse 32 says. It says, they're in the middle of this riot. They're all yelling. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. You ever just joined a riot because it was happening? That happened in Ephesus that day. One organizational scholar describes anxious people as a panic in search of a trigger. A panic in search of a trigger. Ephesus, because it was insecure, because it was under the influence of this idol, because it was entirely self-interested, Ephesus was that day a panic in search of a trigger. And Demetrius prompted and pulled the trigger. I think it's amazing, too, that this confusion doesn't seem to just be a description of what was going on in Ephesus that day. That confusion is really a metaphor for the spiritual condition of the Ephesians. They were confused because their hope was built on something insecure and unstable and uncertain. It reminded me of the end of the book of Jonah where God speaks to Jonah and says, Jonah, should I not have been concerned about Nineveh where there are thousands of people that don't know their right hand from their left? They were confused spiritually as well as civically. Four things that distinguish the city of man in this story. It's built on an idol that takes, it's insecure, it's based on self-interest, and because of that it results in confusion. Jumping over to chapter 20, we see a picture of a different kind of city. I think a picture of what Augustine would call the city of God. Now, Augustine, when he says city of God, does not mean to just say the church. Otherwise, he would have just said the church. But he is talking about the community of God's people throughout all times and all places who are motivated not by love of self, but by love of God. And because of that, here in Acts 20, the church for us is a picture of what that city of God might look like. And here in Acts 20, what you have is the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to the elders of the church that he has founded. Paul spent three years there in Ephesus. Uh, He spent two years preaching and reasoning in the synagogues before the riot happened. And then it seems he spent some additional time teaching and preaching and preparing leadership for this Christian community that had grown because of the Spirit's work. And we see four points, I think, in the city of God that stand in stark contrast with the city of man in Ephesus. Here's the first. The city of man was built on idols that take, but the city of, man, a city of God is built on a God who gives. Idols that take versus a God who gives. Idols take everything, And give nothing. God takes nothing and gives everything. Look at verse 28 there in Acts chapter 20. Paul says to the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Friends, the church was purchased 
with God's own blood, the blood of Jesus, his son. And it's helpful for us to realize that the God of the Bible is not like an idol. We don't appease this God hoping that he's going to give us some desirable benefit in this life. And in fact, throughout the Bible, it is shown to be a great sin when we treat God this way. When we treat him like a cosmic vending machine that we put in the right inputs and then expect that he's going to deliver the outcomes that we want. We don't appease God to get stuff. God does everything. That's the gospel. God does everything. And this church, this city of God, is built on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. You see it mentioned time and again throughout Paul's conversation in verse 20, in verse 27, in verse 32. The church is built not on trying to appease God to get stuff, but on the fact that God has rescued sinners from sin and death and hell. He has done it all. And because of that, friends, the church is built on his grace. It is built on his gospel. We bring nothing to the table. Jesus does everything, and then God delights over us like we've done something. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's grace. Instead of an idol that takes, the city of God is built on a God who gives. The second thing we see, I think, in Paul's conversation with these elders is that the city of man is built on insecurity, but the city of God is built on faith and repentance. You see it in verse 21. Paul says, I testified to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the ongoing task of the Christian life, faith and repentance and obedience. In fact, that is the sum total of the Christian life, turning to God in faith, turning away from our sin, and walking in obedience. Rinse and repeat over and over and over again. In the city of man, people had to keep showing excessive displays of devotion to get things from their idol. But in the city of God, because we are already loved and accepted, we are welcome and free to acknowledge our sin. We are welcome and free to turn away from it and to turn again to a God who delights to accept us more than we delight to ask for his forgiveness. Friends, Part of our task as God's people, therefore, is to turn away from idols in our own hearts. Part of our task as God's people is to repent of the places we go to time and again for meaning and purpose and security and comfort and to feel like we are enough if those things are not God himself. In fact, that's what's kind of amazing going back to what Demetrius says. In verse 26, in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. What characterized the earliest church there in Ephesus was turning away from their idols. We too must turn away from our idols. 
And because we are called to a life of faith and repentance, this is why Paul emphasizes so many times throughout this passage that he proclaimed the whole counsel of God to the church. He proclaimed everything in the Bible to this church. He is innocent of their blood because he told them all that was required of them as God's people. Friends, we as God's people are obligated to believe whatever the Bible teaches. We are called to avoid whatever the Bible forbids, and we are called to do whatever the Bible commands. We are obligated to the whole counsel of God. Because of that, our lives will be one of faith and repentance. Because we are always learning from the word of God what it means to follow him. The third thing we see in Acts 20 is that the city of man was built on self-interest, but the city of God is built on self-giving, not self-interest. Unbelievable. Self-giving. The gospel radically reshapes our priorities. You see that in even the way Paul talks about his life. The gospel gives us an eternal perspective on things like reward, on things like what is most important, which means the gospel helps us avoid the temptation to maximize short-term comfort and status. You see Paul say this in verses 23 and 24. He says, The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is the same Paul that writes in Philippians 1 that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. His entire life has been reoriented away from status towards fulfilling the mission of God that has been entrusted to him. And that's not just a posture for ministry professionals. Friends, all of us are called to have our priorities radically reshaped by the gospel. The city of man is about getting what you can now and in this life. The city of God is about giving. It's about blessing others. It's about pouring out our lives on behalf of other people. And that, in fact, is the very last thing Paul says to uh, the church there in Ephesus. He says, um, let me find it. I coveted no one's silver or gold. This is in verse 33. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Friends, the church has its priorities radically reshaped by the gospel because the church is being conformed to the image of Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in and among us. We are being shaped more and more into the picture of Jesus. And Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 8, 
He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We are being shaped into the image of the one who is rich and became poor for the good and enrichment of others. As we get into Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, in the coming weeks, one of the things we're going to find out pretty early on is that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He has gone to Rome. Everything he's saying is going to happen has happened. He has gone to Rome. He is imprisoned as he writes this letter again because his priorities have been radically reshaped by the gospel of Jesus. Here's the last thing we see about the city of God. The city of man was full of confusion. The city of God is about beloved community. From confusion to beloved community. How beautiful is the end of Acts chapter 20? Verse 36, when Paul said these things, he knelt down and prayed with all the elders. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They didn't say bye at the door. They walked him to the boat to say goodbye and to see off their beloved friend and pastor. It's a beautiful picture of love and affection in the church. And even throughout the letter, you notice Paul says multiple times, like, I went from house to house, weeping and and imploring people to turn to Christ. This is a, a ministry of affection and love. And I think Acts 20 gives us, if nothing else, a vision for the church, which is centered on the gospel of people working out their salvation, turning from sin and pursuing righteousness, walking in faith and repentance, and of giving our very selves to one another. It is a beautiful picture of the kind of community that God means to create in the church. And friends, he means to create that kind of community here at Heritage. He doesn't want us to be part of the confusion of the world. He wants us to be the beloved community. He is shaping us to be that. And friends, I want to commend you because I see that happening here. I see people coming who are new, who are lonely, who don't know others, and y'all welcome them. You mob new people when they come. That's amazing. It's great unless they're introverts and then they're a little overwhelmed, but they come back because something's compelling about it. Y'all love people, you are warm. You are hospitable. You have a posture that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus. You are a taste of the beloved community that the city of God is meant to be. But let me challenge you not to be happy that you've made it this far and decide not to go the next leg of the journey. Friends, we must always continue to grow in these things. We must always learn to walk in faith and repentance. We must always learn to give of ourselves. We must always learn to be open and hospitable and welcoming and affectionate 
to walk with one another, to bear one another's burdens. Because at the end of the day, a church like this bears witness to the truth of the gospel. Maybe more so even than just a sermon might. Y'all make the gospel plausible when you live like it is true. When you turn away from sin, when you love one another, when you are brought together, you're a group of people that might not otherwise hang out together. But when you are brought together because you have been redeemed by Christ, you show the world that the gospel is not about confusion, but instead about community. That's what Jesus is doing here at Heritage. It's what Jesus is always doing in his church. That's why Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. He's trying to help them understand what it means for them to be the city of God, what it means for them to be a beloved community. And that's why we're going to look at Ephesians this fall. And so as we close this morning, I'm going to leave you with two questions that I want you to think about, maybe even write down thoughts about. Here are the two questions. They go together. What would it look like for us to pursue a church like this together? What might it look like for us to pursue a church that is a beautiful community? And the second question, what might that require of you? What might that require of you individually to be part of a beloved community? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work. You are moving in mighty and powerful ways, in ways we can't even see or understand. And Lord, we pray that you would continue your work here at Heritage. Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to be centered on the gospel of what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, help us to be people who walk in faith and repentance Help us to be people who give not just of our resources, but give our very selves to one another and make us and shape us into a beloved community. Make us a picture of your grace and your goodness. And Lord, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would do that work, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us a church that doesn't just talk about the gospel, but lives it out in our daily lives. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.